Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We begin at this moment, as we will for the coming days, and maybe even stretching out to two weeks, as Citigroup just publishes, they believe Mr. Powell will be renominated. Our Fed coverage with Michael McKee, and we look forward to advising you with the best guests we can find over the coming days and weeks. We start strong with William Dudley, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, of course, the former president of the New York Federal Reserve and uh, for years with Goldman Sachs as well. Bill, you mentioned in your essay on a Fed with uh, some degrees of constraint, I would say, a path forward. Is the Powell in the Brainerd path all that much different forward into 22, 23, and 24? I don't think so. I think they're pretty much in the same page in terms of Thinking that the inflation pressures that we're seeing now are mostly transitory. Uh, remember, the, the, the whole entire FOMC has supported the current policy path. There's been no dissents for, for many, many meetings. So everybody's on board. And also remember, the chair can't just do what the chair wants. They have to bring the rest of the committee along with you. So I think the difference between Powell and Brainerd is pretty slight in terms of what monetary policy actually is going to turn out to be over the next couple of years. Some of this is the guesstimates of previous inflations. Paul Krugman, and we'll, folks, we'll talk about this with Jeffrey Lacker here in a bit. Bill Dudley, Krugman leans to the post-World War II 47 superinflation and then collapse to Eisenhower deflation, where Mr. Lacker of Richmond suggests maybe this is more pernicious like what we saw in the 1960s. Which kind of inflation is this? Well, I don't think we know the answer to that because we haven't had this kind of recovery from a pandemic before. What we do know, though, is that the inflation pressures are turning out to be higher for longer. We know that that's starting to feed into wages, and we know that that's starting to feed into inflation expectations. So even if the initial impulse turned out to be transitory, it could still have long-lasting consequences. We also know that the Federal Reserve is pretty late here in terms of responding to any of this. They're still adding stimulus. They're still buying treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities which is pretty remarkable if you just step away from it for a moment and say, would you expect the Fed to be adding monetary policy stimulus at a time that inflation is running over 6%? Bill, a market participant can be super nimble. I I can be nimble with the incoming data and change my mind. It seems to be a really high bar for a Federal Reserve participant to change their mind. As you point out, this is way higher than they expected it would be. It's stickier. It's broader. But I don't hear them changing their mind. Bill, from your experience, what does it take to change your view? I think they're in a t- tight place because the fact is they, to change their mind, they have to accelerate the taper uh, to get the taper done quicker because they've made it very clear that they're not going to taper and you know, not going to be buying assets and at the same time being raised, raised short-term interest rates. So the taper has to be completed before they actually lift off. And to accelerate the taper uh, would be uh, problematic because you've tried to put this out in a very uh, controlled way to avoid a taper tantrum. If you now accelerate the taper, you're going to get the taper tantrum that, you're, that you've been trying to avoid for the last uh, six to 12 months. In your mind then, do you conclude, Bill, that this is no longer a date-independent Federal Reserve, given what you just said? Well, I think that you know, there's a case to be made for accelerating the taper. I mean, I think if you just look at the economic information that we're seeing, uh, inflation higher for longer, inflation expectations becoming unanchored, the labor market very tight, 
But I think it's very difficult for them to actually do that because that's an omission of a policy error and it, it creates the risk of this taper tantrum. So I think end of the day, I think they'll probably wait. Should they wait? Uh, we'll see. Bill, you said uh, basically that they have put themselves between a rock and a hard place. Are you saying that they've already committed a policy error by waiting as long as they have, particularly uh, for ending their bond purchases? Well, I think they have made a mistake in the sense of being so slow to uh, uh, start the taper. Uh, they basically said we we're not going to start the taper until we made substantial progress towards these goals of employment and inflation. And now the taper isn't going to be completed by until June of next year on the current trajectory. That's a very slow uh, path of removal of accommodation, given the economic information that we're seeing. So I think they by locking themselves in this way, I think they've uh, double down on, on being late. This is an important distinction when you say that this is the Fed's doing, that they are between a rock and a hard place, when some people are arguing, even if they were to raise rates that wouldn't have a material effect on the inflationary inputs, that won't solve supply chain disruptions, that won't necessarily heal uh, some of the labor shortages. Are you basically saying that at this point, they are lacking the tools to really curtail inflation in a controlled way, and that they're hoping that it just uh, remedies itself without them having to act? I mean, monetary policy obviously can't solve supply constraints. Only time can solve supply constraints. But what monetary policy can do is keep uh, temporary shocks to inflation from becoming more persistent and long-lasting by preventing it from getting into inflation expectations and getting into wages. I think the biggest risk for the Fed right now is that the labor market may turn out to be tighter uh, sooner than what they anticipated. Yeah. And if that's the case, uh, they're going to have to make monetary policy much tighter at some point. Bill, you've been in the trenches of market economics, working with Ed McKelvey and, of course, a younger Jan Hatzius at Goldman Sachs. Have you ever seen such an odd consensus? So much, not idiosyncratic, but original modeling forward 12 months of the guesstimates of market economics? Well, I think that the Fed has been very clear about what their framework is and that then their applied trajectory for interest rates. I think that's unusual to, to commit yourself for so long into the future about what you're going to do when, as we see, the economic environment can change very quickly. It's also risking an environment that's highly uncertain. It's not like we have a lot of experience in terms of recoveries from mm -hmm. pandemics. So I think the Fed probably made a mistake by locking themselves too, too, too into a, a pre-predicted path of what, how they were going to behave. Bill, there was one conversation this year that's really stood out for me, and I won't forget it. It was sitting down with you and Mohammed, just going into the summer, and you said something that really stuck with Mohammed and I, and we talked about it subsequently, that if the Fed started to move, they may have to move more quickly to get back to neutral, to do it more quickly. And that was an original thought at the time, going into summer. And Bill, I wonder if you can add to that right now, because we have this bizarre situation on Wall Street at the moment, where we have this conversation about a Fed being behind the curve, and then I'll ask someone, okay, what does the Fed do? And they'll say, one hike in Q3, one hike in Q4, then they'll repeat the move in the year after, and we'll have another two interest rate hikes. And it all sounds very calm, very smooth, and very orderly. Bill, you disagree with that to some extent. Can you just inform our audience how? Well, what's very unusual about the market right now is the market expects the peak in short-term interest rates to, for the federal fund rate to be around one and three quarters percent. One and three quarters percent peak in the federal fund rate in this business cycle will be the lowest peak ever, going back all the way to the 1950s. So this idea that somehow the peak in interest rates is going to be extremely low in an environment where inflation is extremely high 
just seems completely inconsistent to me. A lot of people will argue, though, Bill, that one of the reasons why is because of all the debt that's been issued, because of all of the uh, high valuations in stocks that pensions rely on retirees. So basically, uh, the Fed will not allow the market to fall because it could torpedo the economy at a time when they have fewer tools to deal with it. Do you buy that argument? Well, of course, the Fed doesn't want to cause a, pr- a premature recession, but they're gonna, the tightening of monetary policy uh, has to tighten financial conditions. Tighter financial conditions is the mechanism that slows down the economy, prevents the economy from continuing to overheat. Now, obviously, there's risks in doing that. You want to do enough to slow the economy down so you don't have higher and higher inflation, but not so much that you push the economy into recession. The risk, of course, have gone up. Uh, The later you are to tighten monetary policy, the higher the risk that the tightening ultimately leads to recession. This is crystal ball type stuff, Bill, but what kind of rate path do you imagine? How shallow, how steep? incrementally, what kind of moves would you expect? I think they're going to go, you know, start probably after June, you know, June or a little bit later, and then they're going to go faster than what people think and to a higher rate peak than what people think. What I think is interesting is people have completely forgotten about what happened between 2004 and 2006, where the Fed tightened uh, 17 times in a row, each meeting, quarter percentage point, taking the federal funds rate from 1% to five and a quarter percent. That seems extreme, but remember, inflation wasn't a problem then. Uh, and financial conditions weren't as accommodative as they are today. So, it, you know, that's certainly an alternative type of pass that we could see. I certainly expect the peak to be well above the one and three quarters percent that's currently priced into financial markets. Does that have a three handle bill just to squeeze that question in? What kind of yeah, numbers probably. are you thinking about? Yeah, probably, probably three to four. Yeah. That's what I would, well, you know, obviously wow. it's a the crystal ball is cloudy as you, as you get further out. There we know. go. Fed speak. Bill Dudley, thank Crystal you, sir. Crystal balls cloudy. <laughs> Can't quite get away from the Fed too much, Tom. Bill, that was such you. a rude question, thank John. In the clinic, Bill. the former New York Fed president, it thank was. you very much. Just to get in the mind, Tom, of a policymaker at the moment and a yeah. former policymaker, just to speak openly about what they think compared to where this market is. As we spoke with William Dudley earlier, we now speak with Jeffrey Lacker of Wisconsin and, of course, of tenure at the Richmond Fed. And it is a wonderful sequence of conversation because of the history of the Richmond Fed. No one is, no, is, is owned economic history like the Richmond Fed back in 1912. And we're thrilled that Jeffrey Lacker could join us uh, this morning. Jeff Lacker, we are talking in the comments there of Bill Dudley of Berkeley and, of course, of the New York Fed shifting, dare I say, Jeff, to the edge of lacquer. Does it surprise you to see moderates or even some doves approach a more cautious Richmond view? It's certainly striking uh, that a number of people that you would historically think of as on the dovish wing have come around to this. But in a way, it's not surprising. And I think it's because of how far out of bounds of historical um, pattern the Fed's reaction to this inflation surge has been. People forget that the reason we got inflation under control, tamed it, and then brought it down to 2% was by reacting with alacrity to inflation scares, little blips in the bond market that signaled the possibility of increased inflation expectations. Instead, this Fed seems to be willing to let it run. And Jeffrey, let's... Let's take it, Jeffrey, right now to the immediate debate at hand. And I do this in honor of Thomas Humphrey, of course, and all the history you've done. Paul Krugman has gone back to the history of 1947, the post-World War II spike. Down we came with massive disinflation, Eisenhower deflation. 
And then there's the late 60s, which was a little bit different. You basically suggest Mr. Krugman may be off and Mr. Lacker may be on with the more pernicious inflation of the late 60s. Discuss. Well, I can see why the 4748 episode is attractive for those who are sanguine about this surge. But for me, it seems like the 1960s and early 70s is the more apt comparison. Inflation is ultimately about fiscal and monetary policy. And, and at that time period, you had two very significant shifts, a shift in fiscal policy with President Johnson uh, running a great society program, but also running an escalation in the war in Vietnam uh, that busted budgets. And then on the monetary policy side, you had the gradual and then sudden abandonment of the Bretton Woods system, which tied the value of the dollar, however loosely, but in the long run to gold and tied down longer run inflation expectations. In addition, you had the subservience of Fed Chairman William McChesney Martin and Arthur Burns to prevailing political winds, a subservience that tilted them in the direction of um, it, reducing unemployment and, and setting inflation pressures aside. Today, uh, now, we obviously have a, a very striking and large change in the fiscal outlook that's yeah. occurred over the last couple of years. And on the monetary policy side, the Fed rewrote its framework. It rewrote its philosophy last year. And again, it tilted towards a greater concern about employment and, and less of a concern about inflation, more of a willingness to let it run. Jeff, so do you agree? Parallels are striking. Do you agree then that the remedy is going to be a very quick series of rate hikes or perhaps a jump akin to what Bill Dudley was talking about, where we could get three to four percent up end policy rates or peak policy rates in the cycle? Three to four percent wouldn't surprise me. In really? Cycle. I think they're on track to a major policy blunder and recovering from that, realizing they've waited too long is going to cause them to, of necessity, raise rates sharply and try and engineer a cooling of the labor market. And that very rarely turns out well. It's it's Bill Dudley's pointed this out publicly that um, and others as well, that the Fed rarely is able to get the unemployment rate to like go back up a little bit without it going up a fairly large amount. It's very hard to calibrate just how much um, to, to take out of the system. And um, it seems to me plausible that we get to three and a half, four percent. And in addition, that we push the economy into a recession. Yeah, well, that's exactly where I was going to go with this, Jeff. I mean, I'm looking right now at the average high yield bond yield. The average junk bond yield in the United States is currently at 4.23 percent. That is all inclusive. You get the overnight rate at three and a half to four percent. What does that do to the valuations of these securities? What kind of recession are we looking at? And won't the Fed be reluctant to move in that kind of manner because of the torpedoing effect on markets? Yeah, I think they're in a situation where they need to avoid an error. They need to pivot, recalibrate uh, pretty rapidly, uh, accelerate the taper, get rate increases started earlier mm -hmm. next year in the first half. And they're going to need some good luck. Um, and I think um, a lot of markets seem to me priced for right. um, a lot of good luck. 
Jeff Lecker, I want to take the freshwater heritage here of the wonderful Marvin Goodfriend and, of course, his mentor, Alan Meltzer at Carnegie Mellon. Alan Meltzer lectured me like you lectured me. We've got to look all in at the macro data in America as an entirety. Or are we so polarized now that the president studying inflation has to look at it as two cohorts, the haves and the have-nots? It's a good question. We typically have don't have a lot of data on um, uh, inflation rates by cohorts. Um, I think more broadly, uh, differential effects of inflation translate into uh, different political implications for the Fed, different levels of uh, political system dissatisfaction uh, for the Fed. Um, on the employment side, I think um, the Fed's redefined maximum employment as broad and inclusive. Um, that's all well and good, but it's really hard to measure. And by adding more, essentially more goals, you sort of weaken your attachment to any of them. And it raises serious questions. I think like the Fed has been um, right. uh, a slave to a, 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 a deeply flawed and uh, outmoded conception of maximum employment. And I think they missed an opportunity okay. last year to update that. Jeff, one Last question, because you're going to throw me off air. Who is closer to the flawed concept, Governor Brainerd or Chairman Powell? I don't see much daylight to, between them on this. I think that they're both strongly aligned with the House view that the board staff and others in the system um, promulgate, um, views that, that views maximum employment as this timeless parameter uh, that we get to at the very end of a long expansion, if we're not, if in the event that we're not hit by any shocks in the meantime, and it, you have to ask yourself the question: What was maximum employment in the third quarter of 2021? Well, whatever it was, we surely got there and went beyond. So, the modern view that corresponds to the modern view, which is that. Uh, maximum employment, the natural rate, call it what you will, is something that fluctuates substantially uh, over the business cycle, sub fluctuates with a lot of different economic yeah. conditions. And the Fed needs to take that on board. This is why I love speaking to former Fed presidents, because, Jeff, you'd never say this 10 years ago. People speak say, so openly. Now they're no longer say, the Fed. I say I, I said it in the committee, and now it's only a transcript. So. <laughs> Jeff, thank you, sir. You find it there. Jeff Lacker, former Richmond Fed president. Thank you very much. Joining us now, Laurie Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, at the close on Friday, 46.82, year-end 2022, you're at 50.50. Walk us through the path to 50.50, year-end 22. So thanks, John. It's great to be with you guys as always. Um, look, we wanted to really refocus the conversation as opposed to just kind of thinking about where we're going to trade over the next six weeks, where are we going to trade over the next 12 months. And so we just went back to our models. Um, basically, all of the economic back tests and models point us to about 5,100 or higher. Our valuation models, um, several of which are looking at stocks versus bonds, reporting us to a number of about 50-50. And I think what we're really seeing in the data are two things is one, even though economic growth is expected to cool off next year, and we do have some hurdles to get through, frankly, on supply chains and inflation. If, we are, if we're right about where the economy is going to end up next year, if it's about a 4% type number, which is what the economics community is anticipating right now, we should be getting to somewhere around 5,100 on the S&P. That would be fair value. And all of our valuation work, if you look at stocks versus bonds in particular, 
stocks are still the only game in town. And I think that gets lost in this equity market discussion at some point in time. Yes, we have extended valuations, um, but stocks at the end of the day are an inflation hedge. And when we look at our models that valuate stocks versus bonds, we're still seeing a case for 8% type returns next year. Yeah. Uh, Lori, just a, a beautiful brief there. Um, I noticed, Lori, the string from General Electric to J&J in this morning, the idea that Royal Dutch Shell will finally move from the Netherlands back over the United Kingdom. And these are corporations that adapt. They're going to adapt based on what you just said to 7, 8, even 9% nominal GDP. If you, you know, forget about the mathiness of it. You extrapolate the yeah. interpolate, whatever, a phrase from my childhood. How do you base your cost? Is it based simply on nominal GDP? It's we, we look at nominal GDP. We look at real GDP. Um, again, we look at stocks relative to bonds. We look at a plain old fashioned PE multiple and make an assessment about next year's earnings. And I'll tell you, Tom, the earnings discussion is fascinating because there was so much angst on this last reporting season about whether or not companies were going to be able to manage through supply chain pressures and inflation pressures. And there was a lot of you know complaining. And I'm not saying it's unjustifiable. But if you look at the inflation discussion, it was pretty negative. We had a lot of companies talking about how you know, their inflation outlooks had gone up next year, that they were caught off guard by the inflation that they saw perk up in 3Q. Supply chain pressures have been real. They have been intense. But at the same time, companies have demonstrated a remarkable ability to structurally suck out costs from their systems. They have been applauding their supply chain teams, their logistic teams. They've been getting inventories on the shelves. They've been meeting the demand that they can, and they are managing through in a remarkable way. And it, I'm really hard pressed to understand why that won't continue well, next year on the strength that we've already seen. Lori, how much is the question mark here, fiscal spending, the idea that we're going to get a fiscal drag next year, and that could potentially affect how much consumers are willing to absorb these costs? I mean, I'm struck by the fact that nearly two out of three of the biggest U.S. companies actually reported substantially fatter profit margins this year yeah. than back in 2019. Well, look, I think it's a question on consumers and corporates, and we know that the corporates are passing along price increases. And what we're seeing so far is that there is not any negative feedback on underlying appetite, as I like to call it. There have been some issues with meeting demand technically here and there, not for everybody, but a few. But under underneath the surface, consumers still have the cash to go out and spend and still have the appetite to go out and spend, even though, frankly, they've been feeling lousy for the last couple of months. And I think part of that is a testament to the fact that we have this unbelievably strong labor market and we are seeing wage gain increases. So at the end of the day, the appetite is still there. And, you know, I look at some of the forecasts around the street that are calling for negative numbers next year or severe pullback. And I just simply don't see the case for a growth scare. I don't see the case for the idea that we're going to be flirting with recession, which is typically what really pushes us down into negative territory and equities. Laurie, great to catch up as always. Good to see you to kick off a trading week with Laurie Cavasina of RBC Capital Markets. <laughs> Sometimes things need to be made pretty simple. This from Mona Mahajan. Overall, we continue to believe that the economic cycle in the US remains in the middle innings. With above-trend GDP growth in 21 and 22, for investors, this means that the bull market still likely has room to run. Markets tend not to enter bear markets unless the economy is entering a recession. Exactly the point Lisa was making just moments ago. Joining us now is Mona Mahajan, Senior Investment Strategist at Edward Jones. Congratulations on the new seat, Mona. Great to catch up with you once again. Thank you, John. Great to be back. Is it that simple? Guys. Is it that simple? No recession, this equity market grinds higher. You know, 
really when you look historically and we, when we, we did the analysis, uh, when we do get worried, when we do hit those 20% type drawdowns or bear markets, uh, we do tend to see an economy that is either in a recession or entering recession or the Fed is close to the end of its tightening cycle. Of course, as we look into 2022, neither of these conditions are in place. And so, yes, we think this bull market has legs still. Uh, that being said, we do think that returns will likely moderate, that we will likely see more normal levels of volatility. Uh, keep in mind, we are now in the third year of very strong double digit gains in the S&P. So in 2019, we had 28%. Last year was close to 17. This year, we're already at 23, 24%. So when you look historically mm -hmm. at those figures as well, uh, a fourth year of those type of returns is less likely. Uh, but could we get positive returns in line with earnings growth? Uh, we think that's fair. Mona, I have the clearest memories of 1991 when Wharton invented the dual degree track. You did that, which is one of the most prestigious academic tracks in America. John, it's very much equivalent to what goes on in the United Kingdom. That track is based on humility. I want you to speak to Edward D. Jones' clients now. They're sprawled across this nation, and they're looking at the fancy people booming on both coasts. How do you respond to that? What do you tell the rest of America about the boom economy of the elite? Yeah, look, uh, certainly in the United States, we continue to see a little bit of a, this dual track, as you're alluding to, this K-shaped recovery where part of the uh, economy and part of you know investor base is doing well, and and part of it is is not doing so well. But what we like to tell our clients, you know, at Edward Jones, certainly we have 17 million plus, oh, nearly two trillion dollars in assets. We think generally the course is to remain uh, diversified in your portfolios. Stick with equities. You know, there's been a lot of talk on inflation and inflation fears. When you look historically, one of the best asset classes to own in an inflationary environment is equities. And even if you look at this year, yes, CPI is at 6.2%, but as we alluded to, S&P returns close to 24%. So, you know, it, it certainly makes sense to, to stay that course. Within equities, of course, uh, you know, we continue to like here that value cyclical trade. We think that has legs as well. Uh, we're mindful that as we get towards the end of next year, there is some, uh, you know, the, top, the comps get tougher for value and maybe easier for growth. But for now, value continues to remain attractive. Start to look outside the U.S. You know, we talked about tremendous growth here in the U.S. Well, there may be some room for catch up in areas of emerging markets, even non-U.S. developed markets. Uh, as we get hopefully better vaccine and COVID trends longer term, as we get these supply chain issues hopefully easing, and of course, hopefully we'll start to see some stability out of China. And we'll, we'll hear from Biden and, and President Xi later today as well. Mona, no one sees truly dark clouds, and that's what we've been talking about. Recession seems to be off the table, and yet you do have consumer confidence at the lowest since 2011 here in the United States. You do have things that are sort of scream bubblicious, like my 12-year-old son asking whether he can buy a non-fungible token this morning. I am wondering, from your perspective, whether this gives you concern, not my son, but the idea that no one sees truly dark clouds. You know, certainly when you think about uh, black swan events and last year, 2020 could certainly be considered one. And yes, it is hard for economists to sit here and predict what could really derail uh, the market from a really true black swan event. Um, but generally, we do have a good sense of what earnings growth will look like next year. Uh, we do have a good sense of, uh, you know, whether or not we're seeing any uh, big holes in, in the economy when we look at areas like credit spreads, when we look at areas like even the VIX index, which is that fear index. Um, so when we track these economic metrics, 
Um, and, you know, we, we've done so historically and they've provided a really good uh, basis for, you know, looking at the future. We're not seeing any huge uh, holes or areas of concern. You know, I think the biggest ones would be inflation and a Fed policy mistake. Uh, and thus far, we're hopeful that inflation does ease from these peak levels. You know, we've talked about supply chain easing. We also think we won't see a repeat of what we saw this year in commodity prices, energy prices, um, you know, going up another 30 or $40. We won't see a repeat of uh, auto prices increasing to the, the magnitude they did this year. Um, and so, you know, from that perspective, we feel comfortable with the view that positive earnings growth above trend GDP growth, um, certainly a consumer that is showing really high appetite for demand. And we're seeing that we'll see how the retail sales figure comes out, but certainly the last couple have been strong. Uh, and so to us, this is not a demand shock, which would probably be more worrisome than what we're seeing in the marketplace, which is more of a supply shock. Mona, great to catch up. And we're all wishing you the best for the year ahead. Thank you. Great Lucy. to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mona Mahajan there of Edward Jones. Right now, it is an annual visit, but this year, highly unusual. Steven Sadoff is foundational in retail, his, her his heritage at Saks Fifth Avenue, and now senior advisor at MasterCard. We're thrilled that he could join us. I've never seen an essay like you wrote for MasterCard, you and your team, Steve Sadoff, of the bang-up year. What I love is you go back and do a compare and contrast, not pandemic, but with 2019 reaching out to the guesstimates of this holiday season, and I see retail retail up 12% after auto and gas taken out. And I see what Lisa cares about, baubles, bangles, and beads up 40%. Explain that two-year arc that we see in retail. Well, good to see you, Tom. And it really is a healthy uh, consumer right now. And it looks like a very strong Thanksgiving, Black Friday, and back and holiday season. If you look at it versus 2019, we're seeing some real recovery in the consumer. We're looking at growth in the double digit range, 12% versus pre-pandemic levels, department stores, apparel, luxury, accessories, uh, all doing extremely well. And the consumer is healthy, they're back. And what we're seeing is good margins with the retailers. We're seeing the consumer mm -hmm. having a lot of money in their pockets. And this is across the high end as well as the lower end of the consumer. You have lived inflation bouts at Saks Fifth Avenue. They directly affected just the, the, the every floor of, of the great store. What does this inflation bout mean for MasterCard and the optimism you have about uh, retail buyers? Well, I think right now it's saying that as we get through the rest of this year, we're really on a very good glide path to a strong consumer. The holiday forecast was for 7.4% growth for the overall season. We're looking at Black Friday in the 20% type of range. We're looking at Black Friday, the, the Thanksgiving week in the double digit range. So the consumer is healthy. Now we've got pricing, we've got inflation the retailers are taking pricing and you're seeing it in some of the margins that you're uh, seeing coming out of a lot of the brands and the retailers right now. So it is a re, uh, an inflationary environment. Uh, hopefully it'll start to ease as we go into next year, but the supply chain issues are real and that inflationary number is factored in into the overall uh, growth rate. How much, Steve, is this uh, a supply chain disruption issue, the idea of shortages of labor? How much is this company taking advantage of all of these concerns and then jacking up prices way more than they've been able to for years when they've been forced to keep them down due to global competition? 
Well, I don't know whether it's taking advantage or not. We're in an environment where companies are able to uh, get pricing through with their uh, customers, uh, but they're seeing real price increases. I mean, if you look at the transportation costs, you look at the labor input costs, all of these are very dramatic. Uh, in many cases, if a, a brand has pricing power, some categories you have pricing power, others you don't. Where you have pricing power, I'm seeing them taking pricing at margin, which means that they're getting a flow through and you're seeing it in uh, overall prices and in terms of their gross margins. Steve, when we were talking about former President Trump's policies, we discussed the effect on retail from some of the tariffs that he implemented uh, across the world. How much are those tariffs still instated and still uh, raising prices for end consumers in a way that perhaps President Biden could alter? Well, the prices through the tariffs still are there, and we do need to see them come down because the consumer is going to feel the, is feeling the effect of these uh, higher prices. So, is there an opportunity to uh, take off some of the tariffs? Absolutely, uh, over time. But right now, the issue is that the consumer is facing some of these uh, price increases. However, they do have money in their pocket. If I look at the month of October, for example, we're looking at 6% type of uh, growth on top of when you had Amazon Prime Day and you had the early promotions year ago. So the consumer spending, as we go into next year, it's gonna start lapping a little tougher. You had the, uh, some of the, uh, uh, the pay, uh, government payments that started last January. So the environment, especially with the inflation, is going to get tougher. But as we go through the holiday season, uh, I feel very good that yeah. you have good momentum across all these categories. Steve, I wanna bring up a board again in radio. Let let me describe this board to you because I think it's just that important. And it talks about the explosive two-year growth and what we see particularly uh, out of uh, Amazon and the rest of the digital uh, space. It's just a hugely explosive growth of 50.2% arcing across two years. Steve, you're a Saks Fifth Avenue guy. What does that mean to you to see that statistic of 50% e-commerce growth in 24 months? I think it shows the digitization of America that this is here to stay, that you're seeing the 7% growth on top of the 50%, uh, you know, in terms of on top of the going from 12% of commerce to 18% of commerce. Digital is real. The consumer wants an omni-channel experience. They want to buy products anywhere. They want to be able to get them. And the winners are being able to do in-store, online, buy online, pick up in store. And that's, Tom, in the luxury sector, as well as in the uh, uh, entry, you know, even the dollar store type of environment. So I think what you have is an environment where the consumer is king. They have all the data and they want to shop conveniently. And uh, you know, those of us in the luxury sector used to think that digital wasn't going to play. They weren't going to shop online. That's just not true anymore. Look at what Saks did. They're building their Saks.com business as yeah, a separate well, company and investing in it. Lisa, I, let's dovetail this in and make some money for MasterCard and Steve. Lisa, now you and I need a road trip to the Saks Fifth Avenue shoe floor. You go up that elevator where they used to go click, click, click on the elevator, uh -huh. and you open out and do an extravaganza of shoes. Lisa, how far are we from them Amazoning that and like taking a firm in there so any any person could migrate out to a sensible three or four pair shoe acquisition? 
reasonable. This tells you a lot about Tom Keene, not about my shoe proclivities. I'll just put that there. Just to wrap <laughs> this up, though, Steve, uh, you know, what we're talking about going to Saks Fifth Avenue mm. is a, a high-class issue, right? People go there if they want to spend usually a lot more money than, say, uh, somebody who shops in some of the other retailers. And I wonder, to Tom's point earlier in the show, the bifurcated recovery, whether the spending is a bifurcated spending of the haves and bigger ticket items and the have-nots still restricting some of their purchases. I'm not so sure I agree with uh, Tom on that. I think the consumer's healthy across the high end, clearly the luxury environment. You look at 90% growth versus year ago, or even 30, 17% growth versus two years ago in some in the luxury sector. Luxury, the high end, electronics, jewelry, very, very strong. But if I look at the dollar stores, I look at the recovery in some of the uh, the TJXs of the world, uh, I think, and even the strength you see in the targets, uh, the consumer at the lower end had a lot, of, some of it because of the government support programs, the labor market being very strong, wages going up, the consumer spending at all levels right now. It's great. Steve Sadov, only, only Saks could come up with a Central Park theme for their shoes floor with MasterCard. And of course, the gentleman always and forever from Saks, Steve Sadov with us this morning. Steve, thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.